Hey, I'm Gabriel Goldfeder. I'm a Jewish life consultant, a.k.a. Rabbi. We've reached the nadir of the story. The prince is stricken with Tzarat. If we're in the time of Tanakh, he's outside of the camp. He's exiled. He's isolated. This happened because the family has deteriorated to the point where the sister, the princess, is so envious of her brother, whom she momentarily wanted to help. But when she saw that underneath the wound that he had afflicted himself with when he was chopping wood, there was a precious stone, the family has deteriorated to the point where her envy has overridden her love for her brother, she seeks counsel with a mechashef, with a magician. She has cast this spell on him, on her own brother, and has taken the charm, which is the physical embodiment of the spell, and cast it into the water, and no one will find it. The king, of course, is distraught. He does what he always does. He goes to doctors. He even goes to sorcerers and magicians. And not surprisingly, they didn't benefit him. It didn't work. Nothing happened. So he goes to his next move that he always does. He decreed about the Jews. He decreed that the Jews, that they would pray. And they, of course, do what they always do. They went to look for that tzaddik. They brought him to the king. I am distraught as I read this. My concern and commitment for people growing, for people realizing that they have choices, that they can choose a different path, that they can do something else. People are not making different choices here. The king, following his pattern, using the same moves he always uses. The Jews, following their pattern, using the same moves that they always use. And why not? Why shouldn't they? Why shouldn't anyone... When they've found something that works, why should they reinvigorate? Why should they reconsider and try to find some other path towards accomplishing that? The king has no reason to believe that requiring and decreeing that the Jews pray is in any way wrong. The Jews have no reason to believe that their immediate pursuit of some tzaddik who will pray for them rather than than them praying for themselves. They have no reason to think that that's wrong at this point. It works. It's effective. Sometimes it seems that the bottom of a process or the end of a process is brought about specifically because people resort to a habitual response that has worked in the past and then it doesn't work and they need that. They need to see that the thing they thought they, thought they could stand on, the thing that they assumed they would always have access to, the lever that gave them power in the past, they have to see, we have to see that it doesn't work, that we can't resort to that any longer. But they try one more time. But here, it's broken. This tzaddik was constantly praying to Hashem. For he had promised that the son of the king would be made entirely of precious stones, and it wasn't so. It didn't work. 
the prayers of the tzaddik didn't work, it seems. This structure, the king, depending on the Jews, depending on the tzaddik, has faltered. It's not effective. It's not bringing about the thing that they all want to happen. Thank God. Something will have to shift. So who's going to change? Will the king realize he should stop requiring and demanding and decreeing that the Jews pray? No. Will the Jews realize that they don't need the tzaddik to pray on their behalf and they can do it themselves and Hashem listens to all prayers and they don't need to have a designated prayer or some kind of intermediary between them and God who will take care of their business for them? No. There will have to be some shift here. Some change. Someone's going to have to move. And it's not going to be the princess. It's not going to be the king. It's not going to be the Jews. It's going to be the tzaddik himself. We see, Rabbi Nachman gives us here a glimpse of his inner dialogue. And he claimed against God. It's a very powerful word. He claimed against God. He made his case, as it were. He's arguing with God as if he's in court. And his reasoning, Did I do this for my own honor? I did this only for your honor. He says to God, And now it has not come about as I said it would. Of course, no one had any reason to suspect that the tzaddik did this, made this promise to the king for his own honor. But a glance back at that original interaction that he had with the king during which he told the king to gather up all manner of precious stones and grind them up and dissolve them in the wine and give some to the king and some to the queen. Remember that at that time in the story, he wasn't referred to as a tzaddik, he was referred to as a chacham. He was referred to as a wise person. Someone who's wise is using their knowledge of the world and how the world works in order to bring about a certain goal. And obviously, there's ample place for that in the world and how we function. But notice again that shift where he's no longer referred to as a tzaddik, he's referred to as a chacham. Maybe he knew how this had to go, what needed to happen in order for the king's wishes to be fulfilled. But maybe in the act of knowing and therefore in the act of mechanizing, of leveraging, he lost track of something elemental to his purpose and to his task, which is the role of prayer prayer as a as an indication that I'm not in control here I don't 
have the capacity. I don't know how to close this loop. I can't make this happen on my own. So it makes sense that the tzaddik, as his mechanized plan wasn't coming to fruition, it makes sense that he and his recognition of the limits of his power would would be the place where this entire mechanism shifts. The king, he has his mechanism. Need something? Tell the Jews to pray. If they resist, remind them, not so gently, how vulnerable they are to him. The Jews, when they have to pray, find the tzaddik. That's fine. That works. Everyone's got their mechanism. The tzaddik, though, is the one who is most likely, perhaps, in this process, to do tshuva, to recognize that something hasn't worked, to turn in prayer, to ask, to claim, to struggle, in order to figure out where things have gone wrong. He's the one who shifts. And as a result of his movement, the entire story shifts. Did the tzaddik do it for his own honor? Maybe. Is that the end of the world? No. Because the tzaddik has the capacity to look at himself and to wonder at his own motives, to try to set himself on the right path if he's fallen off that path, if he's fallen into a pattern of machination, if he's fallen into assumptions of direct cause and effect, if he's transformed himself from a tzaddik to a chacham. That's okay. He'll find his way back. In fact, there's a passage in the Talmud. Brachot, 19a, Rabbi Ishmael says, if you saw a tamid chacham, if you saw a scholar sin at night, you should assume that they have repented by the next day. There's a natural tendency in this person to look at their acts, to wonder, to try to perfect themselves, to try to make sure that their kavanah, that their intentions are properly aligned and properly focused. So this tzaddik who gave a sense a little bit, caught in the moment perhaps, that he knew what he was doing and that he was going to make this happen and he was going to bring about this miraculous thing that the prince would come, would be born and made of precious stones and he was going to promise that that would happen. And here he is in his moment realizing that he didn't really have the power to do that and he prays and he talks to God and he opens that up and he wonders. He doesn't have an answer. But the very space that he opens up is space for movement. It's space for the possibility of a different outcome. And it has reverberations throughout the entire structure. So he comes, he comes to the king. Again, ostensibly having failed. And he was praying. And it didn't work. 
When is he praying right now? This prayer, this last prayer, reminds us of Esther. Esther is going to see the king, Ahasuerus. She's walking towards him. She's terrified. She feels the weight of her entire people on her shoulders. She hasn't been called to the king for 30 days. Mordechai told her about Haman's evil scheme. And she's walking down the hall towards the king's inner chamber, terrified. Perhaps he won't raise his scepter. Perhaps she'll be sentenced to death. She's walking down this hallway filled with idols, say the rabbis. She feels abandoned, say the rabbis. She says words from Psalm 22. Eli, Eli, Lama Azavtani, God, why have you abandoned me? As she's walking towards Ahasuerus, there's no more time. There's no other option. She has to go. She's praying. So too, the tzaddik in this story, praying as he walks towards the king, knowing how weak his position is. And at that moment, says Rabbi Nachman, And they informed him that it was kishuf, that it was sorcery, that it was witchcraft. We don't know who told him that it was kishuf, that it was sorcery, witchcraft. The important thing is that he found out through his open space, through opening and looking around, he came to realize, he came to know what the cause of this was. It is definitely fascinating that he thought it might have been his own fault and that introspection is the very thing, that dialogue that he opened up that is the very thing that made space for him to have this knowledge that it was Kishuf that in the sequence of the story were led to believe that he wouldn't have come to that conclusion if he hadn't been having this dialogue, if he hadn't opened. And then from there, he realized what was at stake. He realized what was at play. And now we can move forward. We can resolve the issue, bring about the next step for the family, for the kingdom.